Well, good morning. Again, welcome to Austin Bible Church. We are delighted to have you with us this morning, and we have grace upon grace blessings. Before I uh, begin our study in the book of Hebrews, we're going to uh, receive a welcome, uh, a message from uh, Pastor Dan Craw, who uh, came to town this weekend to attend the, uh, the GES conference that I attended Friday and Saturday, and uh, he thought he was going to return home to Corpus Christi last night, but the sovereignty of God overruled, and so we're blessed to have Dan with us. Dan, of course, uh, trained uh, in the local church seminary that we have here at Austin Bible Church. We ordained him in uh, 2015, so, uh, and he's been uh, at Corpus Christi Bible Church. So Dan, would you please bring your greetings and your message for us? Good morning, dear friends. This is a little different. To remember to keep this microphone up here. Um, man, this is always so exciting. And I was trying to think, and I, I think I locked it down. It was it was August of 2017. I'm pretty sure the last time I spoke from this pulpit. So it's it's a little uh, interesting. It's a little exciting. Uh, actually, a little more than <laughs> a little exciting. This is the uh, wonderful thing about uh, getting out of your own pulpit and into another is um, not the nervousness of speaking because um, I know most of you, um, I grew up with most of you in the faith, and so it's just very exciting to uh, come before you and bring a message, uh, even a 10-minute message, but you understand when we say 10 minutes, that automatically means 20, right? Um, We've had some interesting times at Corpus Christi Bible Church, and uh, there's been a couple of verses that uh, keep coming back into my thinking that uh, cause me to rejoice that uh, give the flock there much encouragement. And uh, of course, when a new pastor uh, gets started, um, things are pretty great. No no serious problems. There's a lot of teaching that happens, and then eventually uh, everything blows up. Something happens, yeah. So uh, last year, uh, I had my first and only funeral so far to preach, and that was a Quite a privilege. Um, it was one of my elders that I got to deliver the uh, message for and uh, um, glorify Jesus Christ in the faith that he uh, had proclaimed in, uh, in his life. Um, but now we're facing other trials as a, as a flock. Uh, Stephanie and I are facing other trials as far as uh, walking with the Lord and trusting in him. And so I want to bring you a short message from Jeremiah 17. Uh, verses 5 through 8. If you want to turn there with me. This has been an interesting weekend, and I have uh, uh, commented to a couple of people how faithful God is to when, when trouble arises, when trials come, it's usually compound trials. Like everything hits it all at, at one time. So um, we are facing uh, sort of a uh, financial crisis down there, if you will, uh, which is a an earthly term. It's looking at, er- at earthly things, like how much money's in the bank account, that sort of thing. Um, and yet, uh, this gives us an opportunity to uh, uh, apply all of these things that we've been learning for the last uh, three years. This is actually, tomorrow's my three-year anniversary. Uh, the uh, day that we moved down was my birthday of uh, 2017. That was my birthday present, is uh, becoming the pastor there. So, But... Uh, the difficulty in the Christian life, um, uh, parapetology or agonology, uh, uh, combining aspects of both of those in our understanding, uh, we, uh, we recognize that there are struggles, there are trials, uh, there are difficult situations that uh, the Lord allows in his permissive will, uh, 
Hello, Job chapters 1 and 2. Or the Lord directs for our discipline. And so um, the testing of finances, meaning the bank account is is, uh, empty. That's what we're seeing. And yet we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Um, And the ministry doesn't end simply because the money seems to have run out. That uh, there still is a flock to feed. Um, There still is ministry to be done. And so we're looking at what the Lord is doing now. How is he molding and shaping us through these uh, opportunities to trust in him? So I want to read these these uh, couple of verses here in Jeremiah 17, uh, verses 5 through 8. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a juniper in the Arabah. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. By contrast, though, The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. So I'm going to concentrate mostly on those last two verses, of course, but recognizing that when we we have our focus off of the Lord, then uh, everything that's happening around us, self, others, and circumstances, gets the better of us. So last night, I am headed back to Corpus Christi, uh, looking forward to uh, being at the pulpit and uh, speaking to the flock and giving them a report uh, of the, uh, the conference, and then more compounding trials. My uh, car decided to uh, light up the dash. Every single light, I think, lit up on my dashboard, and so I pulled off the road and got into a, a gas station parking lot, and uh, of course, like I think most of us, when something like that, that hits, we're rather annoyed and upset and wondering what, what, what's, what's happening here. How could you do this to me, Lord? That sort of thing. And then the uh, rejoicing hits. Because right? I'm thinking, wow, I had all these plans. Well, wait a minute. Whose plans am I looking for? So what a blessing it is this morning to be in fellowship with all of you. I don't know how many days I'll be here. don't know what the Lord's plan is for all of it. But uh, uh, all of a sudden... I was excited. Well, my car's broken down. That's great. <laughs> and no matter what it is or, or what's, uh, what it's going to cost to fix, uh, all the money in my personal bank account is money that he put there anyway, and he can put as much as he wants or as little as he wants. So uh, there's an opportunity. Verses 7 and 8, the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. Now I want you to focus on verse 8 here. He will be like a tree planted by water, It sends its roots out toward a stream. It's focused on where it can get nourishment, where it can get water, where it can get uh, the things that it needs to continue to grow. It doesn't fear when heat comes. Self, others, and circumstances are not affecting someone who's trusting in the Lord. Our focus is not on those external things. It's not uh, destroyed in those external circumstances. But rather, look what happens. Not only does, uh, does... Um, the person trusting in the Lord not fear when heat comes, but its foliage remains green. No matter what's going on around the outside, whatever circumstances we're in, when we've got our focus on the Lord, we continue to grow and bear fruit. It will not worry in a year of drought. Compound trials. Compound trials. Or cease producing fruit. Because the more trials we face, the greater opportunity we have for maturity, the greater opportunity we have to see the Lord's faithfulness in our lives. Okay? So this is, this is a, a cause for rejoicing for me. I'm excited 
not only for this morning, but what else is the Lord going to have for me? What, what other kind of fellowship and blessings will I get by my car deciding to break down, right? And so when we look at those things, of course, mentioning Job 1 and 2, we're looking at, we don't know all the things that are happening in the, uh, in the uh, unseen realm, okay? All of the, uh, all those unseen causes, but we also don't see all of the connections that the Lord is putting together and all the opportunities that we have, okay? So in these difficult circumstances, as things just compound and things go wrong, okay, he never goes wrong, okay? And when we keep our eyes on him instead of self, others, and circumstances, we have a wonderful opportunity to not only continue to grow and bear fruit and mature, but also to present a testimony of his faithfulness to all those around us, okay? So, all right. Was that 10 minutes, or do I have two more? <laughs> um, that's the, the basis of what's, what's happening down there at Corpus Christi is teachings going forward. Um, I'm rejoicing to see how much the Lord has, uh, has uh, matured me as I'm uh, Hebrews, carried along to maturity by the Holy Spirit, um, as I see how he's molded and shaped me as a pastor, as I see uh, how... Uh, another thing I continue to think about, uh, when a young man has children of his own, I don't have any, any uh, earthly children, but I do have spiritual children, when a young man has children of his own, uh, after a while he starts to realize, you know, dad wasn't such an idiot after all. <laughs> so I continue to rejoice for my uh, upbringing here and uh, how it has uh, uh, solidified uh, my foundation, a firm foundation for me to walk on. So uh, that's another cause for rejoicing that the uh, uh, Lord's faithful through uh, still my pastor, Pastor Bob. So uh, thank you all. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dan. We will keep you in prayer and keep your car in prayer. And I'm actually feeling a little worried. In uh, Dan spent the night at our house Friday night, and then Saturday morning when we drove over to Georgetown, to the Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown, where the conference was being held, um, he was following me. And I noticed uh, that... that you, your car seemed to struggle to keep up with Lydia. That uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that was actually a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept looking in my mirror, and, and the car was drifting back. And I started to suspect maybe there was car trouble or something. And no, <laughs> maybe it was the lead foot in the uh, in the in Lydia. That might be it. <laughs> well, let's let's pray after. We'll pray about that after church. That's right. All right. Well, Hebrews chapter 12, as we get started this morning, Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, we're in some really fascinating verses. Um, Starting in verse 18. I think we tied together the the details from verse 17 well enough last week. Not confusing regrets with repentance not confusing emotionalism with reality. As uh, the example of Esau was set there as a negative example for us not to imitate, but see to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. And it mentions in verse 17 that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance. So he had a regret, but no repentance. And then it says, though he sought for it with tears... 
And sometimes we confuse tears for reality. And sometimes we, uh, we can't do that. Emotionalism is not a substitute for true spirituality in, uh, in any application. And so those issues, I think, we can, uh, we can leave the way we left them a week ago. I want to move on this morning to verse 18 and following. Because verse 18 tells us what we have not come to. And then, uh, then we learn what we have come to in verse 22. So in verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. In verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. And that's not a touchable Mount Zion. We're told that it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels. And it goes on. It's, a, it's like a long run-on sentence that uh, when I uh, had Roberta Hawkins for Essay Fundamentals, she always said, you know, that, that you've got to quit doing those long run-on sentences and, and structure your paragraphs better. And, and uh, my grade reflected that until I learned to, uh, to give her what she wanted so that uh, not the way I wanted to write, but the way that she wanted to grade so I could get the, uh, the grade she was looking for. But these long run-on sentences are interesting. Paul's very fond of them. The author of Hebrews is fond of them. And what I'm going to center on this morning is verses 18, 19, 20, and 21 which just keeps going and going and going and going. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not even bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. If that's the mountain we have to approach to get saved or to, uh, to get into heaven or to function in the Christian way of life, uh, I don't think we would do any better than the Exodus generation did standing at the base of that mountain. But we don't come to that mountain. We have a reality in heaven. And the basis of our priesthood is not Mount Sinai or Mosaic Law. The basis of our priesthood is Mount Zion in the heavenly places. And the spiritual reality we have in Christ as Melchizedek priests standing before our Father day by day. So this is what we're going to touch upon here today. Let's uh, bow before him in prayer one more time and call upon his faithfulness to open our eyes. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth rejoicing for the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in the blessings we have as church-age believer priests, recognizing, Father, that those abundant blessings are on display even now, right here, right now, as we study to show ourselves approved, we are workmen needing not to be ashamed. And I thank you for the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit who leads us into all things, even the deep things of God. So we call upon you this hour to open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, Minister your word to our nourishment. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So as we take a look at verses 18 and 19, we have the contrast of what we have not come to with what we have come to. And what we've not come to, what our experience is not equivalent to Israel's experience. In fact, 
uh, to try to view the church as a replacement for Israel is so flawed on so many different levels. This could be uh, an effective way to communicate that and to contrast the different mountains that, uh, that they came to versus the mountain we come to and the difference between law and grace and the distinctions between an earthly people and a heavenly people. And so when we start off by examining uh, really what was Israel's history in Exodus 19 and 20, we see how the analogy can be applied. And so in Exodus 19 and 20, a redeemed people came to a terrifying mountain. That's what we start with. A redeemed people came to a terrifying mountain. And we're going to draw the analogy without uh, taking it too far to the point of replacement. We learn that the analogy is useful for instruction, for a pattern, for an example, but it has its limits. And if we stretch the analogy too far to try to draw an equivalency, for example, or to try to understand some kind of a, of a replacement in the plan of God, then we have lost sight of the purpose for the analogy. So we'll limit it on this basis, but understand when they were standing there at the base of, of Mount Sinai to receive Mosaic law, they were already a redeemed people. And they remain a redeemed people. Remember, Israel was redeemed out of their bondage in Egypt. And it was an earthly redemption. It was an earthly bondage. They were slaves to the Egyptian people. And God sent Moses and he brought them out of Egypt. They were freed from their earthly slavery. And they passed through the Red Sea and all the miracles that were done. And they departed Egypt. And they remained a redeemed people ever after. I find it's always significant that, we, that I mention this because the history of Israel in the wilderness is a terrible history. For the most part, they were rebels. For the most part, they, they uh, rebelled against the God who redeemed them. And they could, they could sing a hymn of praise one chapter and start grumbling the very next chapter, forgetting about the Red Sea, forgetting about God and His faithfulness. But what we realize in the example of, of Israel through their wilderness failures is that they never stopped being a redeemed people. Not a single Jewish person was ever, ever had their redemption revoked. Not a single Jewish person ever went back to Egypt. They talked about it. They threatened to. They wanted to. They were going to fire Moses and get a different leader and, and try to go back to Egypt. That was not the plan of God. A redeemed people is always a redeemed people. We can't lose our salvation. And so even though with most of them God was not well pleased, with most of them they failed to enter into the land of rest, they did not enter the land flowing with milk and honey. None of them went back to Egypt either. And that pattern is critical for us to recognize because it, it, center, it centers on our doctrine of eternal security. That we are eternally saved no matter if we're the biggest loser the church age has ever seen. We are still redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the, the Red Sea is a one-way uh, door out of Egypt and salvation is a one-way door out of the slave market of sin and we're never going back to that lost estate as unbelievers. So uh, we've already read verses 18 and 19 here, and it's very reminiscent. In fact, he, in just a couple short verses, as I said, it seems like a, a long run-on sentence. You've come to a mountain, not come to a mountain that can be touched. Well, that's what Mount Sinai was. You could touch it. You could stand on it. You could climb up to the top of it. And they were told not to, but they could. And uh, to a blazing fire. And, and we'll go back to Exodus here, we're going to see this in a moment, the fire and how fearful that fire was. Uh, when, when I got saved, uh, there was no smoking mountain, there was no blazing fire, there was no uh, trembling earthquake. 
All right, that I remember. No, there wasn't. There wasn't any of that. See, and neither was it for any of us. Our personal individual salvation moment was different than the national redemption of Israel. And so while we find the analogy, while we can make analogous applications, there's not going to be a direct parallel anywhere because we weren't all saved at the same time. We got a room full of believers and we were all redeemed at different points of time in different places and, uh, and so forth. But the blazing fire, the darkness and the gloom, the whirlwind, how could it be darkness? I thought there was a fire. Doesn't fire light stuff up? But see, the lake of fire is also eternal darkness. And so it's curious to me when we see these combinations. Uh, the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words, which sound was <clears throat> such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. That's either, um, well, it's just a, it's a message you don't want to hear. You've heard enough. And it's, it's terrifying and uh, we don't want to hear any more. So let's go back now. You can hold your finger there or stick a church bulletin there. And let's go back to Exodus 19. <clears throat> Remind ourselves of these things. And we're probably familiar with the, uh, the basics of, of these chapters. Exodus 19, starting in verse 12, and then taking us all the way down through chapter 20 and verse 19. In the midst of that, that of course spans two chapters, in the midst of that we have the Ten Commandments. We have the Decalogue that's presented early in chapter 20. But the, the verses that lead up to the Ten Commandments and the verses that follow the Ten Commandments uh, kind of set the boundaries for this whole episode, the boundaries for the episode that the author of Hebrews has incorporated in his uh, exhortation about the mountain we come to, see. Because he's just using this to illustrate. And then he's going to spotlight our mountain. And, and what a privilege we have to stand before the Lord in the heavenly places in Christ. So Exodus 19 and verse 12 um, well, I'll back up just a little bit. But um, So verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. And uh, again, there's analogy, there's typology, there's principles. Um, you know, this, why is the third day significant? Well, the third day is going to be significant in future events as well for different reasons. All right, this is not a type of a cross, but Jesus is resurrected on the third day, and the third day is significant in a variety of biblical uh, episodes. So let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. And it's curious to me why children are constantly playing these little touching games. And uh, when there's boundaries, and they know they can't cross the boundary, but they want to get as close to it as they can. And it's, I don't know, I think it's just built into fallen humanity. We've got a sin nature that wants to see if it's really wet paint. Or, you know, we want to see, you know, if we can, uh, the, the kid's fighting in the back seat, you know, will you quit touching me? And, and uh, you know, dad threatens to pull the car over, and you know, that's game over. So you want to, you kind of want to push the line without ruining the, the whole game. Anyway, um, for three whole days, the boundary is set, and they can't touch the mountain on day one or on day two. The Lord's coming on day three. 
And it's a death penalty. So that's serious business. All right. <clears throat> and whosoever does this is uh, even the people that are going after him to put him to death, they can't go on the mountain either in order to put him to death. That means they have to shoot him from a distance. <clears throat> no hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And uh, so that means control your animals because they don't have the volition to understand and capacity to obey or disobey. Uh, they're under your sovereignty. You keep them on a leash. You keep them where they belong so they don't get out and uh, get to where they don't belong. All right, so when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And then I laugh every time I read verse 15. He said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. (laughs) Am I the only one that finds that funny? All right. But it is a facet, and that's not because girls have cooties or anything like that. All right. But it's a facet of, of consecration. Clean versus unclean. Not only in the animals that you could eat or not eat, not only in your dietary restrictions, but also in other things that would defile a person. For example, touching a corpse, burying somebody would leave you unclean. You know what else would leave you unclean? Sex. Marital relations would leave you unclean. There's nothing wrong. It's, it's sanctified. It's right between a man and a woman. It's, it's beautiful. But for the purposes of Levitical sanctification, you put your normal marital life on hold Okay, three days here, it shouldn't kill you, all right, three days, and you sanctify yourself. It's like in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when you come together for the purpose of prayer, and you decide my prayer life needs to get in order first, and let's, let's put the marital stuff on hold until we get the prayer life on target. Then we can resume normal family life. Anyway, that's what the do not go near a woman, because... Um, uh, the woman's menstrual cycle would leave her unclean. Childbirth would leave her unclean. Uh, a girl was twice as long as a, as a boy baby for leaving the, the mother unclean. Uh, sexual relations would leave you unclean. The whole nation is being called to holiness for this episode. <clears throat> so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses uh, brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And so they had to be presented, they had to stand there, and this is as close as they could get. It's a big difference between Old Testament spirituality, New Testament spirituality, the idea of proximity, the idea of nearness, the fact that you and I get to enter within the veil in Christ, to stand before God the Father. That is so unique. As opposed to being out of the holy place, out of the most holy place, out of the courtyard, out of the tabernacle itself, not even on the mountain, down there at the base of the mountain, on the other side of the line that you cannot cross. And if you think that's kind of a bummer to be that far away, where were the Gentiles? Where were the Romans? Where were the Greeks? Where were the Babylonians? All right? It was only the Jews, Israel, was brought to the base of that mountain. So they had a proximity, but not the intimacy that we have as we enter within the veil. All right, now we can see some more of their uh, discomfort here with respect to this. 
And, I, and I, by starting at verse 12, or even by backing up and starting in verse 10, I, I still didn't really um, get, if I would have started at the beginning of the chapter, I could have gotten the, the joke that's found in, uh, in verse 8. When uh, they're getting ready, and Moses is telling them what to expect, Verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And that would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. Because they have this pride, they have this zeal, they have this arrogance, and and in immaturity I think we all do. You know, Peter said, I'll never deny you, Lord. And and we all get this zeal thinking that, yeah, we're going to be the exception rather than, you know, to the rule. And they have this, and they're speaking in an ignorance, but it becomes displayed for what it is because they, 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 they can't even avoid their idolatry for 40 days while Moses is up there on the mountain. They build a golden calf before he comes down with the tablets. So we know how this story turns out. Okay, we'll back to, uh, where do we leave off? In the, let's go to verse 18. Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. It's kind of fun. As you read through this, kind of track how many times up and down Moses had to, had to do this. And he's 80 years old, all right? And he's going up and down and, and watch this. <clears throat> then, uh, and let the priests, verse 22, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Now the Levitical priesthood is not even formed yet, but we have elders in the tribes and we have uh, young men that we're giving sacrifices to represent the tribes. And it's kind of curious what the pre-Levitical priesthood of Israel even was uh, while they were in Egypt and as they departed from Egypt. So um, verse 24, so the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. Now on this trip, Aaron gets to come with him. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And it's kind of interesting, each time Moses makes another trip back down and makes another trip back up, this time he can bring Aaron with him. But the Lord keeps warning, the boundary is still in place. Don't let them break through. Don't let them break through. And it's not, it doesn't take too long and it becomes obvious they don't want to break through. All right? The, the boundary is kind of unnecessary at that point because they are so scared. They're, they're happy to stay where they are. And they're even going to tell Moses, we're okay, go up there, come back, tell us. You know, They would be very pleased for Moses to make a hundred more trips up and down the mountain. Uh, they can just stay down there at the bottom. It's easier that way. Okay, And this too, I think, touches upon what <clears throat> we experience a lot in a lot of churchianity is lazy Christians who would find it easier if the preacher just tells them what to do. You know, just, just you know, you go deal with God and, and come back and just tell us what to do. Tell us what will make God happy. Tell us so that we don't get struck dead or whatever. And, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll stay down here and build a golden calf and 
play the harlot and do fun stuff while you're up there talking to God and doing the, doing the God stuff. Isn't that interesting? And how many Christians do you know would be just very happy to not even know the Lord, not even know anything about His Word, just kind of, you know, outsource that to a preacher. And, uh, you know, I mean, so I, I, I pay a guy to fix my car. I don't have to know how to fix my car. He does that. And I pay a guy to, you know, I don't have to know how to do this. He knows he does that. And, and is, the, is the preacher the same way? I don't have to know the Bible. I don't have to know the Lord. I pay the preacher to do that. And yet I think, I don't know they would put it in so many words or quite vocalize it that explicitly, but it underlies an attitudinal shortcoming, I think, in a lot of people's thinking. All right, well this gets us into chapter 20 then. Here comes the Ten Commandments and, and uh, we know how these go. Um, we get down through these, down to verse 18 of chapter 20. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Very happy for that boundary to be where it was. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself. We will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Forsaking the heritage, forsaking the unique blessings for the Jewish people. Unlike the Romans, unlike the Greeks, unlike anybody. God was going to be their God. He was going to speak to them. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And instead they were happy to have a representative priesthood. A, a layer of, uh, you know, a, a boundary in the clergy lady boundaries between the people and God. So Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Proper reverence is a great thing. As, as far as being terrified, don't be terrified. Have the proper reverence and you won't need to be terrified. But the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. All right, well, this is, uh, this is the foundation. This is where they, you know, he brought them out of Egypt as a people, but they came to uh, Sinai and they became a nation. And they have, now they have a law. Now they have, and, and what they're going to receive through the rest of Exodus into Leviticus and uh, Numbers as they set out from Sinai and head towards uh, Canaan. This is what they're dealing with. And thank God, this is not what we're dealing with. Okay? None of us went to that mountain. That we all got saved wherever we got saved and we came to a much better mountain. The mountain we come to is a heavenly mountain because we deal in the realities, not the uh, shadows. Secondly, as a redeemed people, Israel was expected to be a holy people and to live with the holy God in their midst. As a redeemed people, Israel was expected to be a holy people and to live with the holy God in their midst. No other nation was expected to function on this basis. The Egyptians weren't expected to be holy. They didn't have dietary restrictions like Israel did. They didn't have clothing restrictions. They didn't have other, uh, the other facets of daily life that were monitored by the Lord God. And God monitored everything in their daily life. And that was for their blessing. That was to demonstrate that they were unlike any other people on the planet. 
So they were expected to be a holy people and to live with the holy God in their midst. God was going to reside among them. He will eventually take up his residence within the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem in a temple that Solomon would build. But we're getting ahead of ourselves by a few hundred years now. Okay? But a holy people with the holy God living among them. And I expect that there were moments, probably many moments, and the Jewish people would be like um, Tevier and Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> you know? Happy to be the chosen people, but every once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? The holy God was living there. He never took a day off to go live among the Babylonians. He lived with the Jews. He lived with Israel. It was the place of his dwelling. And so we have the emphasis that gets placed on this then in all throughout Leviticus. All throughout Leviticus. And in uh, Leviticus 11, you taught Leviticus in Corpus Christi, I know. In the, you're a brave man. Leviticus. Leviticus is the book when everyone starts off with a through the Bible yearly reading plan and they, they read real well through Genesis and through Exodus. Leviticus tends to be the end of the calendar for a lot of Bible reading plans. And it's a shame. But I get it. It's uh, a lot of blood, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of confusion, things that we don't relate to. I would be a terrible Levite, which is a good thing I'm a church age pastor teacher. Leviticus 11, and uh, we've got all these animals you can eat and not eat, no bacon, and that's terrible. But when we get down to verse 44, he says, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. I am your God, I am holy, you be holy. That's the basis for this. Like when, uh, you know, I complained that my friend didn't get spanked for things I got spanked for. And my dad would say, well, I'm not their dad. I'm not going to spank them. I'm not their dad. I'm your dad. I'm going to spank you. Thanks, dad. Well, he says, I'm your God. And I am holy. You will be holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Israel, you are the people that I redeemed, so you are the people that I own. You are the people that will serve me. And it, and it centers on this. So now we draw the analogy because we are a redeemed people, and who is it that bought us? Jesus bought us, did he not? His blood on the cross. So who owns us? Are there duties that we are obligated to on the basis of what he has done for us? Of course. So the analogy is useful, but it's not a strict parallel. As long as we understand this, I think we'll do well. Over to Leviticus 19. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. What we're called to do. Hebrews 20, I'm sorry, not Hebrews, Leviticus 20 and verse 26. I may do that again and again because I, you get a little bit of built-in dyslexia or some kind of, I don't know, retarded or something, but Leviticus and Hebrews. Hebrews is our Leviticus. For New Testament believer priests, for a believer priest in Christ, the, the Melchizedek priesthood, 
we've got a book of Hebrews in the new, uh, book of Leviticus in the New Testament, and it's the book of Hebrews. So if I slip up again and I keep swapping them out, you'll understand why. All right. Leviticus 20 and verse 26. Thus you are to be holy. And, and you'll notice the context. If you, if you look at the verses that lead up to this and, and so forth, you'll see that it encompasses so much of their daily life. The food they eat, uh, the things they touch, even things as, as um, personal as, as marital relations, sexual relations, even things as personal as feminine uh, hygiene or, or, or uh, monthly cycles, things of that nature. Um, so the things that we usually don't talk about in public, uh, and yet the Bible spells it right out very explicitly. And even the most personal elements of, of daily life were subject to the holiness of God and the expectations that the Jewish people were set apart. There was something different about Israel in, uh, in these things. And so uh, in 2026, thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. And this <clears throat> a man or woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. A lot of different applications, but the principle is the same. Here it's witchcraft. All right, um, finally 21.8. And uh, with the establishment of a priesthood, and, and really this chapter shouldn't even be necessary. If, uh, if they hadn't have been so rebellious at the foot of the mountain, uh, they could have been a nation of priests. He said that they, he wanted them to be a nation of priests. And instead, he ends up giving them a Levitical tribe of priests. And so this priesthood is introduced here in this chapter, and they're going to be even more set apart than the then the Jews were set apart. All right, so uh, some of the requirements for the priesthood that... Um, so the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall defile himself or a dead person among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people and so profane himself. So even the list of people you were allowed to bury was limited based upon, and the priests had the highest uh, uh, restrictions. The high priest especially couldn't even do what the regular priest could do. He shall not defile himself as a relative by... um, Let's see, verse 5, verse 5. They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. This was all associated with the pagan religions of the day. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for she is holy, for he is holy to his God. It was required that they marry a virgin. Verse 8, you shall consecrate him therefore for he offers the food of your God for he shall be holy to you for I the Lord who sanctify you I am holy. Also the daughter of the priest if she profanes herself by harlotry she profanes her father she shall be burned with fire. Wow. You thought it was rough to be a preacher's kid? (laughs) Try being a Levitical priest kid 
and, uh, and the issues there. All right. Of course, you and I, we are also a redeemed people. The church is also a redeemed people, expected to be holy. And we have our own text in 1 Peter 1.16 that makes this clear in the New Testament. So we see by analogy what we learn in the Old Testament, we can apply in the New Testament within the boundaries of what New Testament passages make clear are applicable for us. 1 Peter 1.16. And I probably need to say that again. The things that we adapt in the Old Testament, that we make secondary application for ourselves, we do so only within the limitations of what the New Testament makes clear for us. Case in point, dietary restrictions. In the book of Acts, we're told that those are done with. And uh, the Lord told Peter three times what, that it's all available now. You can eat it. God has provided it. Eat it. Enjoy it. Thank Him for it. And Peter struggled with that because his whole life was under Mosaic law and he had a hard time making that adjustment. I've had no trouble making that adjustment because I was never under Mosaic law and I've always liked bacon. So I've, I'm happy, again, not to be a Levitical priest of any sort. But within the boundaries of what the New Testament tells us, we know what our parameters are for application. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have... Um, I mean, I'm headed for verse 16, which is citing Leviticus and applying it to us. But it says in verse 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is clearly an exhortation to New Testament believers. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So we have a personal life of holiness that doesn't need a Mosaic law. We have a personal life of holiness because of the Word of God that we have, because of our position in Christ, being baptized in union with Christ, because of the reality of our priesthood. We don't need the rituals. We don't need the ceremony. We don't need to have all the external liturgies and all of the pomp and circumstances of Israel. That was them. We're, we're, we're not them. Okay? We're not them. We can be personally holy without Mosaic law. Why would we need the law? When we have a Hebrew canon and a Greek canon. When we have the mind of Christ. So like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, understand this, our access is greater than Israel's ever was, and our accountability is more severe than Israel's ever was. Because we address as Father the one who impartially judges. So it says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. We want to have the right kind of reverence so that we're not terrified in the wrong kind of way. All right, so the church is also a redeemed people expected to be holy. When we look at verses 20 and 21, we pick up a couple of details here that um, 
we didn't read in Exodus. And so as a commentary, it's, it's a curious thing. So let's reread them now in Hebrews 12, 20 and 21. And of course we have no problem with this because the same Holy Spirit that wrote Exodus is the same Holy Spirit that wrote Hebrews. And we accept everything God writes as being true. But it's been a curious exercise several times in Hebrews. We saw examples in Hebrews 11 with Sarah, with Abraham. We see examples that if we didn't have the book of Hebrews, we would not have read Genesis quite the same way. That Sarah was lauded for her faith. And when we go back to Genesis, we just see a lot of laughter. We don't see much faith. But in Hebrews 11, Sarah is praised for her faith. And little distinctions like that. Likewise here, Hebrews 12.20, they could not bear the command. They could not bear the command. Now, when, I, when I, we just read it together, when we were looking at those chapters, it didn't seem like they had a trouble bearing that command. Like they were kind of happy to have the boundary there. But this commentary says they actually recoiled. They actually could not bear it. They felt resistance to just one command. And it's curious to me, I don't know if they got some undercover film footage or we'll see the deleted scenes DVD someday, but I'm curious who did step across the line? And, and how many did they have to kill when they did step across the line? Or did somebody step across the line and they failed to stone him because they couldn't bear the command? Anyway, there's more questions than answers at this point, but the statement is made that they could not bear the command. The statement is also made in verse 21 that Moses trembled which we didn't see in the two chapters we read of Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. We saw Moses making a lot of laps up and down the mountain. We saw Moses obedient. We saw Moses as a proper example in contrast to the people. We, didn't, we never saw a verse in Exodus 19 or Exodus 20 where Moses himself said, uh, I am full of fear and trembling. That actually comes from a different passage. And the author of Hebrews is actually providing a synopsis, providing a summary almost off the top of his head, if you will. But he is actually blending a lot of Old Testament events. Moses had a fear and trembling at the burning bush episode, which was prior to the Sinai episode. In fact, it's kind of interesting that the prophecy God gives Moses is the prophecy that he would return to Sinai with the Jewish people. And so the trembling happened the first time when he was by himself at the burning bush. The second time when he comes back with the people, he's not fear and trembling on that episode because that was God fulfilling the prophecy. Isn't that amazing? Moses wants to know, how will I know? He says, well, you know because it's going to happen. <laughs> he says, you'll be back here with my people. And that's interesting to me too. All right. So when we look at these verses, their inability to bear this preliminary command did not bode well for their ability to abide by all 613 commands of the Mosaic Law. You know, if they can't handle this one, how are they going to do it? And, and they were so boastful too, saying, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And when he comes back with the Mosaic Law and he reads the tablets, like, we'll do it, we'll do it. And they, they, they don't. Almost never 
very rare that Israel would have uh, such positive volition on a national basis in their Old Testament history. It was far more common that the Jewish people were by and large not living in conformity to Mosaic law. See, I knew I wanted to read Exodus 19.3 at some point. I thought I had misplaced it. But they're so boastful. Anyway. I don't think I wanted verse 3. I think I wanted verse 8. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. All right. In any way, is this any different? So here's Israel. I'm not, am I too harsh on Israel? How about Adam and Eve? They had one commandment. (laughs) Okay? Forget the Ten Commandments. Forget the 613 commandments of the law. They had one commandment. Don't eat from that tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it it was a thou shalt not commandment, meaning they didn't have to do anything to obey it. They just had to not do the thing that disobeyed it. So, you know, how long can you not do something? Don't eat from that tree. Is that, is, that too, is that too onerous of a command? Is that too tough to follow? Well, for Adam and Eve it was, because how long did it take before they were eating that tree? Okay, I mean, we don't know, but it doesn't seem to be very long from chapter 2 to chapter 3 of Genesis. And, and the Satan comes along as the serpent, and he lies to them, and then they go for it. So the, uh, and I think these these things make a make a um, a good exhortation for us, because whether it's it's one commandment or ten commandments or six hundred twelve commandments or six hundred thirteen commandments, or um, the infinite number of commandments that legalistic churches can invent. And if you've ever been in a legalistic church, they've got thousands. Okay, and they make up more every day, and and it's curious that. When you want to operate on a basis of legalism instead of on the basis of grace, no one wins. We all fall short. It's a, it's a terrible thing. It's why we have Galatians in our Bible. Let's be gracious, not legalists in anything that we do. Even Moses was filled with fear and trembling. Now thankfully Hebrews is not the only book that gives us a commentary on the Old Testament uh, in the book of Acts, Stephen preaches a sermon. Uh, it was his last sermon, turns out, because they killed him at the end of it. But Stephen was reviewing Israel's history, and in talking about this episode, we have Acts chapter 7, verses 30 through 32. Join me there. Of course, this is Stephen. He's one of the early deacons. He's the first martyr. He's going to die here at the end of this chapter. But as he's preaching to the, uh, the crowds, he gets to this point in verse 30. He says, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. Now this is a description that matches 
what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 12.21. We didn't find it in Exodus, but it is mentioned here. And it's in connection with Exodus 3 and the burning bush episode, not the nation of Israel for the Mosaic Law episode of chapter 19. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. All right. Let's go back to Exodus 3 and see that burning bush. You see what I'm talking about. Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. This is why we don't teach annihilationalism for the lake of fire. The lake of fire is eternal burning, but the person in the lake of fire is never consumed. There never reaches an end to the destruction. It is eternal destruction away from the presence of God and His glory. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And this is what uh, Stephen was quoting in Acts chapter 7. And this is the episode here. And we see the trembling, we see the um, when down in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Afraid to look at God. Before we leave this chapter, let's also look down. Moses had so many excuses. I like reading his excuses. Because <laughs> he sounds so lame. And then as I read them, I laugh at myself because I make many of the same excuses and then I sound lame. And it reminds me how lame I sound. In verse uh, 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Isn't that beautiful? Now some people don't like it. Some people say, well, that's not much of a sign. What kind of a sign is that? Well, it's the sign that God selected. How about that? Why don't we just be content with what he selected? Are we going to demand a sign and then demand what the sign is? You know, you've already seen a burning bush. What else do you want? And it's, um, you know, if, if you and I, do we want a sign for obeying? God could just as easily say, well, when I've done my work through you, you'll see my work for what it is. How's that for a sign? Huh. <laughs> All right. And so this is it. So when they come back in chapter 19... And the people are all trembling. I think we, we don't see Moses trembling in chapter 19. Why not? Because his sign was fulfilled. He said, wow, here I am. And the nation is with me. God made good on his sign. And so we have it there. All right. Next week when we come back, we're going to be looking at, not Sinai, we're done with Sinai. We're going to be looking at heaven. And there's a mountain in heaven. 
And sometimes it's curious because in Jerusalem there's an earthly mountain that's also called Zion. And the fact that the earthly mountain is also called Zion, don't confuse that with the heavenly Zion. They're different mountains. One's on earth, one's in heaven. Same thing with Jerusalem. There's an earthly Jerusalem, but guess what? There's a heavenly Jerusalem. And it will come down as well after the millennium. And so when we talk about two Zions, we'll talk about two Jerusalems. We'll talk about the blessings we have to stand before the Lord. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of new covenant. Why does Jesus come so late in this list? <laughs> you know, I would put him on the first of my list, but that's, that's just me. All right, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. There's a reason why it's in this order he's building. He's reaching the the blood as his pinnacle. Because if it's not for the blood, none of us are there. All right. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you, Father. And I pray that we learn something here this morning that with uh, these stories, maybe we've known them for years. But Father, open our eyes to the significance, to the contrast that the author of Hebrews is drawing. The contrast between us and them what they approached, what we approach. Particularly, Father, because the recipients of this epistle were in danger of falling away, that they had a background in the Levitical priesthood, and many of them were considering returning to Jerusalem, returning to the Levitical priesthood, denying the church age reality of, of, uh, of where they were in Christ. And Father, I pray that we pay heed to these, to these warnings as well. None of us used to be Levitical priests, but any of us could be subject to the dissatisfaction and the the lamentations and the and the longing for the way things used to be. And how tragic and how sad is it when <clears throat> the dog returns to its vomit, Father? Because you've given so many good things, every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift, and it's good and it's perfect and it comes from you. But each one of us is vulnerable to being dissatisfied and going back to the back to washing in the mire, back to our vomit. So Father, I pray that we learn these lessons. And in particular, when you fix our eyes on Jesus, the chapter began commanding us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And now we get a couple of verses that really give us maybe the best description for church age saints of the heavenly realities. So open our eyes to learn these things as we continue to study. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.